Welcome to another life-impacting message from City Light Church, North Adelaide. You can find more great things like this at citylight.church slash North Adelaide. So our first reading is from 1 John 4, 7 to 12. So 1 John chapter 4, starting at verse 7. Dear friends, let us love one another, for love comes from God. Everyone who loves has been born of God and knows God. Whoever does not love does not know God, because God is love. This is how God showed his love among us. He sent his one and only Son into the world that we might live through him. This is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his Son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. Dear friends, since God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God, but if we love one another, God lives in us and his love is made complete in us. And the second reading is from Revelation chapter 2, starting at verse 1. Revelation chapter 2. To the angel of the church in Ephesus write, These are the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand and walks among the seven golden lampstands. I know your deeds, your hard work and your perseverance. I know that you cannot tolerate wicked people, that you have tested those who claim to be apostles but are not and have found them false. You have persevered and have endured hardships for my name and have not grown weary. Yet I hold this against you. You have forsaken the love you had at first. Consider how far you have fallen. Repent and do the things you did at first. If you do not repent, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place. But you have this in your favour. You hate the practices of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who is victorious, I will give the right to eat from the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. To the angel of the church in Smyrna, write, These are the words of him who is the first and the last, who died and came to life again. I know your afflictions and your poverty, yet you are rich. I know about the slander of those who say they are Jews and are not, but are of the synagogue of Satan. Do not be afraid of what you are about to suffer. I tell you, the devil will put you in, some of you in prison to test you, and you will suffer persecution for ten days. Be faithful even to the point of death and I will give you life as your victor's crown. Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The one who is victorious will not be hurt at all by the second death. 
We are walking uh, through the book of Revelation, uh, and we are at week two. Last week, if you were here, uh, we looked at just the opening chapter of the book of Revelation, and I thought I'd just start by kind of summarizing just really briefly what we looked at last week, um, and in particular, three key things we saw last week. Um, The extra one that I'm going to mention now is that it's a weird book. Um, If you've had anything to do with the book of Revelation, it's a pretty weird book. Uh, But let me share three things about the book of Revelation that we saw last week. Um, Firstly, um, we explored, and something I reckon I've said in the past as well, in order to read the Bible as grown-ups, as adults, we need to focus on the literary style of the part of the Bible that we're actually reading. You need to know what kind of writing you're reading. Um, so, for example, be it history or poetry or parable, or in the case of Revelation, we're reading what's known as apocalyptic, right? Which we don't read very often. We're not well schooled in the work of apocalyptic. Here's a definition of apocalyptic for you. Um, If you can remember this off by heart by the end of the church service, I'll give you a free book. Anyway, um, apocalyptic is a Jewish literary style from the ancient world used in anxious times to unveil vital universal truths through coded imagery. Yeah, there you go. Um, So as long as you understand the literary style of the book of Revelation, all the weird bits kind of don't seem so weird anymore. So much so that a 15-year-old sitting in a church service in the first century got exactly what was going on in the book of Revelation, even though 2,000 years later, because we're not used to the style, we kind of find ourselves weirded out or freaking out a little bit, right? Secondly, I made the point last week, albeit briefly, that the book of Revelation is just a simple letter um, from the Apostle John, who was exiled on the island of Patmos under the Roman authorities to seven churches. It's actually just a simple letter to seven churches of what John calls Asia, or we would consider modern-day Turkey. And so it shouldn't be too weird. And actually, the book of Revelation presents to us very similar theology that we find in the rest of the New Testament, and it's also very deeply grounded in the Old Testament as well. So it's just a letter, nothing kind of freaky and too much new going on. But before John gets to the seven mini-letters that we begin looking at this morning, He has a vision of the Lord Jesus Christ, and that was the big thing we saw last week. A vision of the Lord Jesus Christ in all his glory, walking amongst his people. And this is exactly what people, this is exactly what Christians need when they're enduring anxious times. Because in anxious times, whether you're oppressed by the Roman authorities in the first century, or, you know, we're living in the modern world and facing other kinds of pressures... The pressures around us cause us to potentially do two things, right? They cause us to either fear or adjust. So fear, right? Fear is a response to the pressures we might face around us. So fear is when, you know, you keep your head down. You're worried about what people might think of you. So you just operate as a really quiet Christian, never sticking your head up above the parapet, never speak up at work or or uni. You just keep to yourself because of fear. The other way people cope with the sort of dissonance between what we believe as Christians and the pressures of the world is to adjust our beliefs. Problem solved, right? 
You just give up the tricky, kind of controversial or unpopular parts of the faith. But the antidote to it all, whether it's anxiety that leads to fear or anxiety that leads to adjustment, the antidote to it all is a vision of the Lord Jesus, his power, his majesty, his wisdom and his glory that we saw last week. Because when you know that Jesus is glorious, that he holds all things in his hands, that he walks among you and with you, it causes fear to dissipate and it causes the temptation to adjust your faith, kind of to flee. And we find this double message, comforting those who are fearful and challenging those who are tempted to adjust the faith, we find this same double message all the way through the 22 chapters of Revelation, but in particular we find it in these seven little letters that Jesus addresses to the seven churches, only two of which we'll look at today. And today, as we come to Revelation chapter 2, I just want to explore three little things Three little things, and if you're a note taker, you can go three, two, one. Three little things, three preliminaries, two commendations, one challenge, yeah? Three, two, one, and we'll finish at some stage, right? Um, Three points, three, two, one. So firstly, three preliminaries, three preliminaries. Um, I want to tell you a little bit about the cities uh, to which these first two letters are addressed, Ephesus and Smyrna. Um, the city of Ephesus, um, I think there's a map coming up. There we go. You probably can't even see it. But over on the, the left-hand side of the map, you've got these seven cities to which these seven letters are addressed to. Today, we're just looking at Ephesus and Smyrna. So we're talking modern-day Turkey, but what John refers to as Asia. I'm down this side, so down the bottom right, you've kind of got, you know, sort of head down there and you'll find Jerusalem and places like that. Cyprus is mostly cut off in the middle. But um, we're talking about Ephesus and Smyrna. Um, Ephesus was a giant city in ancient standards, right? About 200,000 people making it the third or fourth biggest city in the ancient world. It was a harbour city, you can see it there on the coast, and therefore a centre of commerce and trade and thought and politics and, and religion. It was the gateway to the east of the empire. So if you're travelling from the west of the empire, wanting to head east, you pretty much would go through the city of Ephesus, and so it was this melting pot of all kinds of people and ideas and things like that. It's any wonder, right, the Apostle Paul spent two years in Ephesus at one point teaching the good news of Jesus. But it seems like after Paul left the city of Ephesus, by the mid-60s, he was there in the 50s, by the mid-60s AD, John the Apostle turns up as the kind of remaining eyewitness for that whole region through to the late 90s AD when this letter of Revelation is written. So that's Ephesus. Smyrna is about, I don't know, they say about 60 k's north of the city of Ephesus, about half the size of Ephesus, 100,000 people. And the Christians there in Smyrna were experiencing severe persecution. Down in Ephesus, things are heating up, but... In Smyrna, things have already kind of broken out. And we heard in the letter, as Nicole read it, that Christians in Smyrna are about to face severe persecution. We don't know the size, really, of the Christian populations there. They were probably in a minority. 
But we do know that when the Apostle John refers to the church at Ephesus, verse 1, chapter 2, or the church at Smyrna, verse 8, he doesn't have in mind like a building like this, right? Um, Church buildings like this didn't really exist until I think around the third century um, AD. In the first century, people probably gathered together in groups of like 20 or 50 in little homes scattered across the cities. You had these little groups of people meeting. That's the first preliminary, the cities of Ephesus and Smyrna. But why are these letters addressed to the angel at the church, for example? That's my second preliminary. It's a bit weird. Um, So verse one, um, to the angel at the church of Ephesus, or verse eight, to the angel of the church in Smyrna. A bit weird. Um, Well, there are three possible interpretations. Depending on the day of the week, I can change my mind on which one I think is legit, right? Um, The first interpretation could be that it's a reference to a kind of guardian angel at each of the churches, strange, but there is some evidence that Jews believe there was like a guardian angel of the synagogue. So this may reflect sort of an overflow of a Jewish belief that there was some kind of cosmic protection over each of these churches. That's the first one. The second possibility is it's just picture language, right? Like much of Revelation, kind of picture language for the vibe of the church, the character of the church. So we might say to the spirit of the church. That's an option. The third possibility is that it just means it's addressed to the human leader of the church. The Greek word angelos, which we often translate angel, can simply mean messenger. Uh, So it usually means some kind of cosmic messenger, but can refer to the messenger, perhaps then the one who leads the church at that particular city. Which of these is the correct interpretation of the angel of the church? I have no idea, Um, but it's Sunday, so I'm going with option two. Um, Ask me tomorrow which one we're going to go for. Anyway, um, but before each church hears the letter to its own congregation, we have to learn the premise of each of the letters. This is my third preliminary. Notice all seven letters open by reminding us of something that was said about Jesus in the opening vision of Jesus in chapter one. Something about Jesus' power and majesty and greatness and his mercy. So have a look, chapter two, verse one. These are the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand and who walks among the seven golden lampstands. It's a reference to the the glory and the sovereignty of Jesus in chapter one. Beginning of the Smyrna letter, chapter two, verse eight. These are the words of him who is first, the first and the last, who died and came to life. Again, a reference again to Jesus in chapter one. I think there's an important point here. The premise, not only of the letters, but of the whole of the Christian life, isn't merely the commands of Jesus, but his greatness and his mercy. It's only as you understand who it is that speaks that following him makes any sense at all. Don't think of this as some kind of external command. Oh, if I eventually want to progress in Christianity, I've got to put up with those difficult words. No, 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 no. The premise of the whole thing is once you know Jesus is glorious and majestic and powerful and merciful, that he's the one who, who died for your sins and rose again to give you eternal life, all of it makes sense. 
Who is Jesus and what he's done for you is where the motivation is found and nowhere else. This one glorious king walks among us. That's the opening to the the letter to the Ephesians here. The one who holds the stars, walks among the golden lampstands. The lampstands are, are pictures of the churches. We are meant to have our minds concentrated by the thought that the Lord Jesus Christ is among us today. Like right here. You look, there he is. Several years ago when I was a pastor of a church in Sydney, I was preaching at our church in the suburb of Lavender Bay of a night and I'd stood up and I'd started, I was about two minutes in and then I, I noticed everything, right? I noticed when you're falling asleep. I noticed when you're alive, you know. Remember that night, I noticed in the back, we had you know, the door entry into the church was on that, sort of that corner and I noticed it was about two minutes in and the Archbishop of Sydney, my big boss, kind of just walked in. You know, kind of unassuming, right? Not wearing hats and holding, you know, shepherd stuff, just you know, wearing clothes. Anyway, <laughs> thankfully. Anyway, he, um, he just sort of walked in and he sat down and, you know, I'm like, oh my gosh, now I'm feeling the pressure. And I was teaching that night on Ephesians chapter two, the Archbishop of Sydney, Glenn Davies at the time, I think he did his PhD on the book of Ephesians. And so I'm not only like going, he's here to kind of like work out if I'm legitimate or not, I'm now teaching what he's an expert on. Oh my, oh, is that really concentrated the mind? Um, I mean, but forget that, right? Jesus is among us and he walks with us every day. That's what concentrates the mind. They're the preliminaries this morning, brothers and sisters. Notice, will you though, as soon as Jesus gets going in his, these letters, he commends these two churches at Ephesus and Smyrna for two things. He commends them, two commendations. He commends them for their resilience under hardship and he commends them for their theological discernment. Let me take these in turn. Two commendations. Have a look with me, chapter two, verse two of Revelation. To the church at at Ephesus, he says, I know, this is Jesus speaking, I know your deeds, your hard work and your perseverance. I know that you cannot tolerate wicked people that you have tested those who claim to be apostles but are not and have found them false. You've persevered and have endured hardships for my name and have not grown weary. I love the repetition, don't you, of like, I know, I know, I know. Jesus knows the hardship. Jesus knows the struggle Jesus knows that by now you ought to be weary, but you're not. Verse three, you've not grown weary. I know, I know. This is the sole theme of the letter to the Smyrnans. The Ephesians get two themes, right? A commendation and a challenge, but the Smyrnans come out scot-free. They're awesome. They just get a big fat commendation, right? For just hanging in there for their resilience in hardship. Look at chapter two, verse nine. I know your afflictions and your poverty, yet you are rich. I know about the slander of those who say they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Do not be afraid of what you are about to suffer. I mean, imagine hearing that for the first time, right? Imagine hearing that. It's going to get worse. 
I tell you, he goes on, the devil will put some of you in prison to test you and you will suffer persecution for 10 days, just a round number um, in Jewish numerology. Be faithful, even to the point of death. And I will give you, and I will give you life as your victor's crown. This is a bit weird, isn't it? Like all this stuff about a synagogue of Satan and so on. But the Jewish population in Smyrna, as far as we know, was pretty big, bigger than the Christian population in the first century. And it seems that the Jews were slandering, which is a legal term, right? Slandering the Christians to the Roman authorities in the town, maybe dobbing them in with anonymous pamphlets, which is something we know actually was happening in the time. Uh, The Roman governors um, would receive um, anonymous pamphlets kind of listing all the Christians that they knew of. You know, there's a Christian at number 10, Archer Street. There's a Christian at 56 O'Connell Street. There's a Christian at 5 Marion Place Prospect. Also, we'll soon discover in the book of Revelation that the devil and Satan, when they're mentioned, almost always, but not always, is a coded word for the Roman authorities. So what Jesus seems to be saying is this synagogue of Satan, um, the Jewish synagogue in Smyrna, is collaborating with Rome against the Christians, slandering them. And the result is financial hardship, verse 9. It's kind of hard for us to understand, but Jesus says, I know your afflictions and your poverty, though you are rich. This is not simple socioeconomic poverty. It's poverty that comes from being pressured by the Romans and excluded from society. You know, in a town of 100,000 people, if you're a Christian, it's pretty easy to exclude you from, you know, kind of unions or work associations or not serve you at shops, etc. But financial hardship of following Christ was very real in the ancient world. Um, there's a picture coming up on the screen. Oh, keep going forward, way forward. Of a little wrist, a hands, hands, there, there. Yeah, there you go. Um, I, I, anyone else? I, I love listening to John Dixon's Undeceptions podcast. Anyone else sort of following the Undeceptions podcast of John Dixon? Really worth listening to. Um, excellent stuff there. But I remember him mentioning just the other day um, in one of his episodes that when he was in Egypt, in, in Cairo, um, he met a, a man named Michael, who was his tour guide, who also happened to be a Coptic Christian. Um, Michael, the tour guide um, for John, had um, just completed, med- had completed medicine, um, studied medicine, but because the Muslims or the Islamists had been ramping up their pressure on the Coptic Christians, who actually were the original people of Egypt, uh, Michael couldn't get work as a doctor. Um, the pressure from the Islamists was on the hospitals to exclude and not allow Copts, Coptic Christians, to work. So he was a tour guide. Um, But over time, things got even worse for him, and so he ended up becoming a mobile phone salesman. Um, Michael, um, this is not him, but he had a tattoo a little bit like that on his wrist, which apparently every Coptic Christian infant gets um, tattooed on them at birth. Pretty intense. And that tattoo of the cross is a reminder that says, we are the people of the cross, come what may. Financial hardship exclusion, and more. Gets worse for the Smyrnans. Um, See what Jesus says in verse 10. Do not be afraid of what you're about to suffer. 
I tell you, the devil, probably the Romans, will put you, some of you, in prison to test you and will suffer, you will suffer persecution for 10 days. Be faithful, even to the point of death. Some of you are going to die. It's pretty strong stuff. There's actually a letter from antiquity that we have dated about 10 or 15 years after the book of Revelation. A letter from the Roman governor Pliny, um, who governed the region just a little bit north of Smyrna. Uh, and he writes to Emperor Trajan about the Christians. So within a few years of this letter to the Smyrnans, uh, this is what's going on. Have a look at the screen. Here we go. For the moment, this is Pliny to Emperor Trajan. For the moment, this is the line that I have taken with all persons brought before me on the charge of being Christian. I've asked them in person if they are Christian with a warning of the punishments awaiting them. If they persist, I order them to be led away for execution. But now that I've begun to deal with this problem, the charges are becoming more widespread. An anonymous pamphlet has been circulating which contains the names of a number of accused persons, the Christians. This question seems to be worthy of your consideration, O Emperor, especially in the view of the number of persons endangered, people being endangered by the Christians. For it is not only the towns, but the villages and rural districts too that are infected through contact with this wretched cult. I think, though, that it is still possible for it to be checked. Oh my goodness, how wrong was Pliny? But we know that the authorities did try to check the movement of Christians. And many first and second century believers lost their lives for the gospel. And it's interesting, through the book of Revelation, suffering for the gospel is true victory. Do you notice how both letters, actually all seven letters, end with a reference to being victorious? So verse 7 to the one who is victorious, I will give the right to eat from the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God, which is in the new creation that's coming when Jesus returns. But look at verse 11 as well. The one who is victorious will not be hurt at all by the second death. Notice, John is not saying, if you suffer, I will make you victorious. Victorious doesn't refer to something that happens on the other side of suffering. Victorious is the word used throughout the whole book of Revelation for suffering through to the end and giving your life for Christ. That is being victorious. We don't have time to go through all the references to this through the book of Revelation, um, but there's this kind of dramatic picture in, Rome, in Revelation chapter 12, which Marky Mark Ballas is going to take on. At, so pray for him. No, no. Um, but uh, Revelation chapter 12, this is dramatic picture of the dragon, Rome, fighting the people of God. And then there's this glorious scene right in the middle where it says, now the people of God are victorious. They have shed blood for the Lord. My point is that for John, victory is losing well, enduring patiently. Christian winning is all about going all the way with Jesus, even to the cross, bearing our cross, come what may. Well, Jesus commends the Ephesians and the Smyrnan believers for their resilience under pressure, but also for their theological discernment. Um, this is 
appoint a praise for them. Um, I bet some of you are a little bit confronted by the compliment that Jesus pays to the Ephesians in verse 2. I know, Jesus says, that you cannot tolerate wicked people, that you have tested those who claim to be apostles but are not and have found them false. The wicked people here, by the way, are not so-called not yet Christians or not believers. The wicked people are the false prophets, the false teachers. Already by the end of the first century, there are people walking around spruiking kind of Christian-y ideas, but not really the truth. It may be actually that um, this is a reference to the Nicolaitans in verse 6. Jesus says, but you have this in your favor. You hate the practices of the Nicolaitans which I also hate. The Nicolaitans are also mentioned, chapter 2, verse 15, uh, where the church at Pergamum is actually kind of dabbling with the teaching of the Nicolaitans. The Ephesians aren't. They don't like it. They hate it. So who are the Nicolaitans? I'm so glad you asked. It's really good. We don't really know. (laughs) Uh, Most scholars think they were probably like an early kind of Gnostic kind of group, Um, So the Gnostic Christians were the people who kind of denied physicality. Um, So they denied the importance of the body. They actually denied that Jesus kind of even came in a body. They denied material reality. They said, look, what you do with your body doesn't really matter. It's only flesh. So sin or don't sin doesn't really matter. Just as long as you think right things, that's that's okay. The word Nicolation actually just means victory. Interestingly, they were the victory team, a bit like Nike. You know, Nike, same word, means victory. And we don't know if that's what they called themselves. You know, we are the victory team. Or if it was John's pun. John has heaps of cool puns throughout Revelation. Like, keep your eye out for them. Maybe he just means, well, they're the so-called victory team. But either way, their pathway to victory involved compromising the gospel. Whereas John will say time after time, True victory is suffering for the gospel. And I bet, like me, you're a little bit troubled by the you cannot tolerate phrase that Jesus uses. Because, of course, here we are, 21st century people, and the principal virtue of our culture is tolerance, yeah? You know, the idea that we have to accept everyone's view as equally valid and right and, you know, don't dare ruffle the feathers. Yeah, sweet. I just want to say this morning, Christianity is not tolerant in that sense of the word. There is no way that the Islamic claim that Jesus was a mere man who didn't even actually die on the cross is equally as valid as the Christian claim that Jesus is Lord, God, and Saviour who died himself on the cross to rescue sinners like you and me from our sins. No way are they the same. No way is the secular idea that we're good enough through and through and only getting better equal to Jesus' teaching that we're fallen, stuck in our sin, and deserving of judgment. We don't tolerate. In fact, it gets worse. We are to hate the practices of the Nicolaitans. This is really worth spotting, guys. We are so duped by our culture, right? This is one of the areas where anxiety leads us to adjust things. Yes, Jesus called us to love all people, even our enemies. 
but he condemns intolerance on views that are contrary to the gospel. Love all human beings, perhaps especially love enemies, but hate ideas that are contrary to the good news, the gospel. I'm not making this up. Let's take a breath. It's a lot on a cold morning. We probably should like stand up and turn around three times and do you want to do that? Let's do it. Stand up. Stand up if you want to, if you can. Turn around three times. High five your neighbor on the way through. Okay, that's enough. Sit down. <laughs> There's at least two hours to go. No. Um, I just want to say at this point, you know, for some of us here today, I bet all Jesus wants to say to you is well done. I know. I know what you do for me. I know the hardship you've faced and I know the things you've endured. I know how you've picked yourself up out of weariness. I know how you've kept praying, kept trying to love, kept reading your Bible, kept rolling into church. I know how you've kept trying to show hospitality. All the things you do, the way you hold on to the truth, I know. I know. You know, other people may not know. The ministry leaders here at church may not know. The elders may not know. I may not know. We may not know all that you do for the Lord. I'm sure I don't know, but some of you just need to hear today from Jesus. I know what you do. Well done. Well, the Lord commends the Ephesians and the Smyrnans for their resilience under pressure and their theological discernment, but he's got a challenge for the Ephesians anyway. Smyrnans come out looking pretty good. Ephesians, look out. Have a look at verse 4, a challenge for the Ephesians. Jesus says, yet I hold this against you. Imagine hearing that. You know, can you imagine hearing that in Ephesus for the first time? Yet I hold this against you. At this point, I just want to clear one thing up. I think, I don't... I have no real right to kind of have a you know, bag out the English translations that we have of the Bible, but I think this is a slightly, a less than great translation of what we have. Um, because when we say, right, I hold this against you, Izzy, often, well, I don't actually, but you know, like often when we say that, it's like we're conveying, like, I've got a grudge against you, Izzy, like you've done something, you haven't welcomed me very well to church. No, which is never true. But you know, like, it's like we, it's like, I hold this against you, it's like we have a grudge. But there's no way it's actually saying that. Kata echo su in the original language just means, I have this against you. I don't know if that makes a difference to you. You know, like I hold this sounds a bit more grudgy. I have this, I think is better. But what does Jesus have against the Ephesians? Have a look. You have forsaken the love you had at first. Consider how far you have fallen. Repent and do the things you did at first. What is the love that they had at first, which they've lost? Has their love of God waned? Or has their love of their neighbor kind of gone missing? 
Jesus says, the love you had at first, without clarification. And there's heaps of debate about this, by the way. But I actually genuinely think it's a reference to their love of neighbour, not so much their love of God. Partly because he's already praised them, hasn't he, for their suffering for his name, praising them for holding on to the truth and not wanting to compromise the gospel. These things sound like love for God, right? But now he rebukes them for a lack of love. And I think it's almost certainly a lack of love of neighbor. Why do I think that? Well, we have another letter written by the Apostle John, the writer of the book of Revelation, which is probably written by the, you know, written by the Apostle John, probably to the church at Ephesus, and it's called 1 John, 1 John. And in 1 John, if you know the letter of 1 John, it has 16 references in it to loving your neighbor across just five chapters. It's kind of obsessed with love for your neighbor. And it seems to have been written to the same town as this letter we're looking at in Revelation 2. Here's a central passage in 1 John, the kind of thing John would say to a congregation of believers. I think we have it. Yeah, here we go. Dear friends, he writes, 1 John chapter 4, verse 7, Dear friends, let us love one another, for love comes from God. Everyone who loves has been born of God and knows God. Whoever does not love does not know God, because God is love. This is how God showed his love among us. He sent his one and only Son into the world that we might live through him. This is love. Not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his Son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. Dear friends, Since God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. And I think this stands behind Jesus' challenge. You've forsaken your first love, the love you had at first. Here's a group of believers who at first were doing all kinds of loving things for one another and, and maybe for the wider community, but it's kind of dropped off. There's a, a lovely story um, told of the Apostle John, written by a guy named St. Jerome around the year 400 AD. This is like a sermon where it's like church history is good for you, kind of like, you know, sermon. Anyway, uh, St. Jerome around 400 AD writes about the Apostle John. Um, It's late, but we believe that he's drawing on an earlier source. This story may be apocryphal, it may not be true, but here is St. Jerome writing around the year 400 AD about the Apostle John. The blessed John the Evangelist lived in Ephesus until extreme old age. His disciples could barely carry him to church and he could not muster the voice to speak many words. During individual gatherings, he usually said nothing but, little children love one another. The disciples and the brothers in attendance, annoyed because they always heard the same words, finally said, teacher, why do you always say this? He replied, because it's the Lord's command And it is sufficient. If this story is historical, it fits with the reading of the letter to the same church, to the Ephesians. They loved God, but their love for their neighbour had waned. Not that we can separate the two loves, love for God and love for neighbour. It's clear in the letter, 1 John 4, that the two loves are connected. Whoever does not love does not know God because God is love. This is love. Not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. Dear friends, God so loved, since God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. This, guys, is one of the most stunning passages in all of the Bible, in all of the New Testament, 
outlining the logic of love. The logic of love goes like this. God has shown his love for you, so don't start with your love for God. He's loved you first. And as a response to his amazing love for you, we love God, but inseparably we love human beings. So the remedy for a lack of love is not try harder. You know, this is not a try harder sermon. The remedy's right there. Focus on the love that God has for you in Christ Jesus. Focus on the cross, the one who laid down his life for you and for my lack of love. And inspired by this, we love. So if you're feeling a lack of love, go to the cross. Don't try harder. The warning is stark, right? Have a look at verse five. Is it not? Have a look. Verse five, this is full on. If you do not repent, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place. How do I put this? Jesus has no use for a church that doesn't love. He has no use for a church that doesn't love. No use. It's useless to him. So he'll remove it. You know, the church building may still stand there as a monument to a love that was in the past, but Jesus has removed the true church from the church. Wow. What's encouraging is that there's every indication that the believers at Ephesus heeded the call of this letter. How do we know that? Told you church history is good for you. We have another letter, not a New Testament letter, but it was a letter written by a guy named Ignatius of Antioch. You've got all these cool names now to roll out at a dinner party like this week, right? Ignatius of Antioch, St. Jerome, you know, there you go. Ignatius of Antioch, um, he was a great Christian leader. He was an early martyr actually for the faith. And we have six of his letters. So Jerome, um, sorry, not Jerome, Ignatius of Antioch. Um, he was arrested in Antioch um, and taken by Roman authorities all the way to Rome, where he was actually ultimately executed um, under Trajan. But along the way, he sends six letters to churches, and one was to the church at Ephesus. The church at Ephesus, right, was still going 15 years after um, when Ignatian sent this letter calling them to love, even their enemies, because it, it's clear that the Ephesians were still struggling with persecution and oppression under the Romans. And this is what Ignatius writes to the church. Pray continually for the rest of humanity that they may find God, for there is hope of repentance. So allow them to be instructed by you, at least by your deeds. In response to their anger, be modest, in response to their boast, be humble. In response to their slander, offer prayers. In response to their errors, be steadfast in the faith. In response to their cruelty, be gentle. Do not be eager to imitate them. Let us show by our gracious forbearance that we are their brothers and sisters and let us be eager to be imitators of the Lord. And within a year, Ignatius himself was killed. I love how in this letter, right, Ignatius shows that love is not simply to be the internal DNA of a bunch of believers, but it's our posture to the world around us. 
even those who overtly oppose us. We might hate some of the ideas out there, but we are to love all people. We are to be gentle with all people. Even more, if we can trust the archaeology of Ephesus, um, we know that the church at Ephesus not only survived as a persecuted minority, but within a century um, basically took over the whole town of Ephesus. Um, It's really cool. Without any armies, without political power, they basically converted the entire city, almost. It's really cool. Um, There were heaps of churches across Ephesus by the mid-fourth and uh, by the fourth and fifth centuries. And one of them, one of the churches in Ephesus, I haven't got a picture of this, one of the churches in Ephesus was 130 metres long and about 65 metres wide. That's pretty cool, right? That's five times longer than this building, and about, I don't know, like three times wider. It's huge. From the year 500 in a town of about 200,000 people. It's enormous. I think the Ephesians hated the call of Jesus. Don't you agree? They heard the Lord Jesus say, I have this against you. You've forsaken the love that you had at first. I'll remove your lampstand if you don't repent. Well, I think they repented and I reckon they changed the world. How will we respond to the letter of Jesus today? For some, yeah, I think the Lord just wants to say to you, I know. I know your endurance. I know the hardships. I know you ought to be weary by now, but I know that you just keep putting one foot in front of the other and you keep living for me. I know. And you know what, I I would be absolutely thrilled to my bones if for some of you, that's the Spirit's message to you this morning. And that that you just leave here today after having some soup next door, just thinking, yeah, Jesus knows. That's encouraging. I'm going to press on. And then I'm sure the message to the Ephesians is going to be relevant to some that you love God, but your love for neighbor is waning. You know, you're diligent, you're disciplined, you're discerning, but you're devoid of love. And if that's you, and you're like me, let's turn, not just try harder, but return to the cross. This is love. Not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. Since God so loved us, we also ought to love, say it with me, one another. Let's pray. Lord, we know that you walk amongst us And it's only because of the blood you've shed for us and the faith you've given us in yourself that we can endure you walking amongst us without cowering with terror. And so we praise you for your grace and your mercy. We praise and thank you for these words to the Ephesians and to the Smyrnans. Lord, write these words on our hearts by your Spirit that we might be transformed and encouraged 
that perhaps we might even repent. Father, we long to be a people who are resilient under pressure, a people who are theologically discerning. But we also long to be a people who love, who love you and who love one another and love the world around us. So, Father, if there are things we need to repent of today, Father, give us the strength and courage and wisdom to do so. And as we fix our eyes on the cross, transform us to be people who are men and women of deep love. And that as we do live in this world, certain of the next, we long that our lives of love, our words of love, the gospel words that we proclaim and the gospel-fueled lives that we live would be impactful to those around us and we would see more people, more like Jesus from all nations. And Lord, we ask this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Thank you for listening to audio from City Light Church, North Adelaide. We hope you found it helpful and we'd love for you to share this message with others. For more great content, more information about City Light Church or to donate to the work of City Light Church, North Adelaide, visit us at citylight.church slash North Adelaide.